we're talking this whole time about why we worship God. And last week we talked about we worship God for what he has done. And we took a look at our own lives and we, we uh, understood where God has been for us our whole life, where he has protected us, where he has led us, strengthened us, and even healed us. And we can look back on those moments and we can worship God for that. We can thank God for it. It's very much in the same way that we, we have our holidays, right? We have Christmas where we remember what God did when he came to earth as a baby. We have Easter where we remember what God did when he raised Jesus from the dead and we can celebrate those times and, and there's great meaning to those for us. And that goes all the way back into the Old Testament with, with the, the ancient Israelites when they celebrated Passover to remember what God did for them while they were slaves in Egypt and how they were set free. And they also celebrated the Feast of Booths, which meant they went out and camped. Uh, they, they had to build tents for themselves and they lived out there and they had barbecues and everything else to celebrate uh, remembrance of when they were homeless and how God brought them through the desert. So we have our holidays for those kinds of things, and we take a moment to celebrate those times and to worship God through that. And we also look through Scripture to see how God has done this over and over again with all of his different sermons. And reading through Scripture is another great way of worship. It's, it's a beautiful form of worship that actually pulls us closer to God, hearing from his own words. So today we're going to move on, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to look at another reason for our worship for God. We worship God for who he is. Last week we worshiped God for what he's done, this week for who he is. You see, worship is attributing honor and worthiness to the object of your worship. We can see this all through our culture, we, we have celebrity worship, we have uh, uh, worship of money, we have some worship of food, I struggle with that on occasion. And all of these things, we attribute honor and we attribute worthiness to them. So this is really important to understand what it is we're worshiping and whether or not it's worthy of that worship. Because what happens when you worship these things is that it actually aligns your heart with it. That's what worship does. It's going to align your heart with that which you worship. Think about that. If you worship money, your heart's going to get behind whatever scheme gets you more of that money. If you worship power, your heart's going to align with whatever scheme or plan is going to get you that power. Now, if you worship God, your heart's going to get right behind God and whatever plan he has for you. So it is greatly important to understand what it is you worship and to know whether or not it is worthy of your worship. So we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 2 that Alex read so well for us. Thank you. And, and I actually just want to jump straight into verse 6. Well, everything Paul says here is, is extremely important. We're going to come back to it. Uh, but, but I want to start in verse 6 and just go down to verse 8 to, to just refresh our minds here, right? So though he was God, uh, Paul talking about Jesus Christ here, though he was God, he did not think 
of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. So what Paul is actually doing in this, uh, in this poem he's written, it's actually called the, the Christ Hymn. What he is doing is he is pointing out what he sees as Jesus' most important characteristic, that of humility. You heard it, he said it a few times in there. Jesus humbled himself. He, he left being God to become man. And not just any man, but a servant. So Paul is pointing out this most important character of his being humility. And I find that odd. I find that that's the one thing he pulls out as the most important thing. And if you think about it, I think you'll agree. When you think of who God is, is the first thing you come up with his humility? Generally not. If you go to one of our Sunday school classes for the kids and you ask, hey, describe God to me, the first thing they're going to talk about is how big and how great and how awesome then he is. And we are still this way as we get older. We can just think about how amazing God is. The first thing we think of generally isn't, oh, he's so humble. So it's odd that Paul would pull that first. So that being said, I want to actually go and look at some of these other amazing characteristics since, you know, I know so much more than Paul and we should probably look at these more amazing characteristics, right? That's that's sarcasm, by the way. Don't, don't write me emails about that. So the first thing I came up with is that God is creative. And not just creative, but he's orderly creative. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, um, which you can if you want. We're going we're gonna to stay there for just a quick second. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, keep, your, keep your thumb in Philippians 2. We're going to jump just a little bit here and there. I always find Genesis chapter 1 is the hardest one to find. Because there isn't like a book before it, and so you don't know how many introductory pages you got to flip through in your Bible to get to the first verse. It's the hardest one to find. I don't, it's the first one. It shouldn't be so hard. But in Genesis chapter 1, what we have is the creation story, the creation of the universe. And I love how it's all set up. I love how God works because it's not just God going... Bam, it's there. No, it's God very carefully going into each aspect of creation and he's separating things and he's organizing things and he's putting things together that belong together. It it's, makes my OCD so happy to read this. Right? That's what creation is for God. He's not just a creative God. He's an orderly God. I've seen, I've seen pictures and I've seen video of, of modern art uh, they, they go to art uh, places, what are they called? Gallery, thank you. Art galleries, this is uh, audience help, right? So there's, there's art galleries and they're doing modern art displays and I watched one person take a hunk of cheese that was about two feet by two feet. I don't know how they got such a big piece of cheese. Uh, and then they took a, a manuscript that they wrote that got uh, declined from some publisher I can't imagine why, uh, but then they took that manuscript and they slapped the cheese with it, and everyone applauded. (laughs) 
That sounds neither creative nor orderly. But if we can take a look outside and see creation, and the more you study it, the more you realize how ordered it is. And also how creative it is. I love watching those nature documentaries where they're talking about like different fish and how they live, and they always attribute it to, oh, through millions of years of evolution. And I attribute it to an amazingly creative and ordered mind none of it makes sense otherwise, guys. But not just creation and not just the order and the, and the separation and, and that kind of thing, but God also created the systems in which these things that he created lived in. If you're in Genesis chapter 1, jump down to verse 14. We're on the, the fourth day of creation here in verse 14, and it says, Then God said, Let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. This is really important. Because he's not just saying, Wouldn't it be nice if it snowed once in a while? Oh, it'd be so great to have like a beach day in the sun. We should create those days. No, he's not doing that. What he's doing is he is creating a system that his creation will thrive in. For those of you who are gardeners, and you get a, you get a bush that grows and it just keeps growing and growing and growing, what are you supposed to do with it to make sure it stays healthy? No one's a gardener here. You cut it, you prune it, right? you got to cut it back, otherwise it grows like crazy, and then it becomes a pariah to your lawn. I have several of them. I don't know why people plant vines. But it's important to have these times of decline so that the earth can be rejuvenated and used again. The same way that God actually offered us, and uh, in the creation story, he keeps saying, I've given you all the fruit with seeds. I've given you all the seeds you need because we're supposed to plant things and let them grow. And they need a season to be able to be planted and a season in which to be able to grow and a season in which to be able to rest so that they can come back again. God didn't just create the animals and the plants. He created the seasons in which to help them thrive. He is a creative and orderly God. I think that characteristic, that aspect of God is pretty amazing. I think that alone is almost just worthy to be praised. But it also leads us into another characteristic. And I, I want to be clear here. I could spend a year and not touch enough of all the characteristics of God. Amen? So I'm just going to touch on a few. So what leads us into the second characteristic is this level of wisdom that is so far beyond our comprehension. We can look at creation and we can go, oh, it's really amazing how that fits together. If any of us thinks that we could have figured out how to make a plant thrive without some guidance from God, you're kidding yourselves. And so the second characteristic, this level of wisdom, far beyond anything we could comprehend. It's actually talked about several times all throughout the Bible, and really, it's, it's referred to uh, 
a ton of times all throughout the Bible, and you could probably take almost every single verse in this book and equate it to God's wisdom that is far beyond my understanding. But I want to I just pull a few of them out. Don't turn to any of these places quite yet. I'll tell you when to go. Uh, but, but Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians one twenty five. He says, God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strengths. The prophet Isaiah talks about this in, in Isaiah 40, verse 28. He says, have you never heard, have you never understood, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. The prophet Daniel talks about this. Daniel 2, uh, verses 20 to 22. Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has wisdom and power, and he controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. All of these writers are talking about God's immeasurable wisdom and power that I, I think it's it's summed up even better for us in the book of Job so if you have your Bibles turn to the book of Job much easier to find than Genesis 1 all the way to the very end Job 42 And just very quickly, for those of you who don't know the story of Job, Job was a servant of God's. He's following God. And, and uh, the devil went to God and said, hey, I think he only follows you because you give him good stuff. So why don't you take away his good stuff and we'll see who's really following you for what. And so God says, yeah, sure, go ahead, see what happens. And Job goes through a ton of horrible, horrible, horrible things. And he has horrible, horrible, horrible friends who come and tell him, well, obviously you've done something wrong. And so finally, by the end, Job continues to uh, state his innocence and he continues to say, God, I don't know why you're doing this to me. You need to answer for some things. And then God shows up and shows him who he is. And so Job ends up responding to God here in, ver in uh, chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 42, uh, the first six verses, it says, Then Job replied to God, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. And I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. So what happens in the very end for Job is he realizes who God is, and he realizes what God actually does, and he says, you're right. This is, this is way beyond anything I could understand. I'm sorry for even questioning it. I shouldn't have. It's an amazing, amazing moment because we have these moments in our lives where we say, God, I really don't know what you're doing here and I'm going to need some answers. And it's normally in those moments where we generally don't get the answers we're looking for. And sometimes we are just told, you're going to have to trust in God. 
See, this is, this is really difficult for us. Because we like to know those answers, do we not? It's important for us to realize how much more wise, how much more in control God is over our lives than we are. We love to hold on to that control. And we just don't have it. It's not there. I think the one thing that describes this the most for me, how much we think we have it, and then we suddenly we just don't. I was reading, I love to read science articles. It's a weird fact about me. Like, I don't really care to learn science, but every once in a while I like to read their articles. So scientists right now are pretty, pretty sure, pretty sure that the age of the universe is about 13.6 billion years old. That's what they're pretty sure, they're sure about. Back in the 90s, in the early 90s, they found a star in our galaxy, and they, they nicknamed it Methuselah. Because when they tried to date it, they came back with 14.1 billion years old. So you tell me how a star is older than the universe. I'll wait. <laughs> so basically what they're saying is, the universe had a child, but the child is older than the parents. Okay. My favorite part about this is scientists went, oh, well, obviously there's a mistake. Hold on, hold on, we'll figure it out. And so they redid it, they re-aged this star in a different way, and they went, oh, see, 13.1 billion. See, there's, it's, we, we fixed it now, we fixed it. But then they took that way of dating the star and they applied it to the universe and they found out the universe is only 11.1 billion years old. So they just made it worse for themselves. And my favorite thing about this is they studied it just a little bit more. They said, obviously, something is horribly wrong. And so they went and they studied this star a little bit more and they found out that the way this star was formed, they believe, was that there were other stars that died and they turned into this star. So now we're not just dealing with a star that's 13.1 billion years old, but now you have two or three or even more other stars that also had to have been several billions of years old because they had to come to life and die and then give all their material to this other star so that it could live. Does that make any sense to anybody whatsoever? Yeah, we're pretty sure. We got it. I'm pretty sure. I know what's going on in my own life. I understand. My absolute favorite quote from the whole thing, this is how the, the, the article ended, is one of the scientists who has been working on this. He said, the most likely explanations for the paradox are some overlooked observational effects and or something big missing from our understanding of the dynamics of the cosmic expansion. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, that's a really fancy way of saying, I don't know. I don't, we missed something. And by the way, the something big missing is God. 
simple enough. That's the something big. So when we say to ourselves, well, I just, I just need the control of my life, that's a big mistake. Let the one who knows, let the one who has all of the wisdom and power to create ridiculously huge things, let that guy take care of everything. Let him have the control. Tonight, you've got to be asking yourselves, well, we are pretty far away from humility at this point, are we not? If you go back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, we've talked about God's amazing, ridiculous, creative, orderly, so far beyond anything we could comprehend characteristics, and now we're going to come back to humility. See, Paul in this poem starts out by telling everybody, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Here it is. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. This is the attitude Christ Jesus had. He's not trying to impress anybody. He's thinking of others as better than him. He's not looking out for his own interests, but he's looking out for everybody else's. This is the the same God who created everything. The same God who ordered everything so that it would work perfectly. The same God who has confounded the best minds in modern science is suddenly saying, yeah, but how are you doing? Why does he even care? There's no reason for it. He doesn't need to. There's no reason for it. Once we recognize how infinitely finite we are and how infinitely awesome God is. The idea that he would have this attitude towards us makes no sense but should fire you up. I want to jump back into Revelation chapter 5. You don't need to turn there. Uh, You don't need to turn there with me. But Revelation chapter 5 is right in the the beginning of John's vision for what the last days will look like. This is the very beginning. And what John is concerned with here is all of heaven is worried that there might not be somebody who is worthy of to be able to judge the world. They're worried that there is somebody not worthy enough to fix the problems. They're worried that somebody isn't going to be worthy enough to save God's people. And so we find John, and and in this moment, he starts weeping. Because he says, I don't know. I don't know if there is anybody worthy enough. And his guide says, take a sec. Look, 
the Lion of Judah comes. The Lion of Judah is Jesus, folks. And all of heaven stops and bows down and sings praises and worships the name of Jesus because they are suddenly in the presence of the only one who is worthy. And so when we talk about what we worship, and when we talk about what is worthy of our worship, there's only one. There's only one that is worthy of our worship. That's Jesus Christ. The one who is humble enough to come to earth as a helpless child, leading the life of a lowly servant, dying a death of a criminal so that we can experience the awesome love of God. Is he worthy of your worship? He's the only one who is humble enough to leave his throne in heaven to step out of eternity and into our time and place so that we could be free of our sin and destructive systems. Is he worthy of your worship? It's the only one humble enough to associate sinners when he's the creator of the angels. Is he worthy of your worship? He is. He's the only one worthy of your worship. He's the only one worthy to align your hearts behind, to guide your life, to tell you right from wrong, to lead you to where you're supposed to be. He's the only one who's worthy. And that is who we worship. That is who God is, and that is why we worship him. So just like last week, we closed our time here with singing a song. Because that's often how we end up worshiping here at church. That's the, the one thing when you say, hey, how do you, what things do you do for worship? We come up with singing of a certain song, right? So this song, again, you, you might not know yet. It's a little bit newer, and that's okay. If you don't know it, that's fine. You can stand there, read the words. The words are the important thing here as it preaches again to you. And it's important, I want you to be uh, comfortable in the way you worship because God wants you to come. So if you are more comfortable sitting and reading the words, sit and read. If you want to stand and sing this out because you know it and you love it, stand and sing it out. And if you're so bold you want to come up here and sing with me, you can do that too. I don't expect anybody, but I thought I'd throw it out there just in case. I see a lot of shaking heads, no thank you. That's okay. So stand with me, sit with me, worship with me in this song.